The following podcast is part of a certified educational activity titled Harmonizing Interprofessional Care with Modern Molecularly Informed and Equitable Therapy for Patients with Advanced Endometrial Cancer. Lessons from a Gynecologic Cancer Center of Excellence. Access the entire activity and complete the post-test at peerview.com forward slash rxv860. Downloadable slides are also available. Hello, I'm Ruthie Solani. I'm a gynecologic oncologist and professor at UCLA in Los Angeles, California. Welcome to today's educational activity entitled Harmonizing Interprofessional Care with Modern, Molecularly Informed, and Equitable Therapy for Patients with Advanced Endometrial Cancer. I'm pleased to be joined by my colleague, Rachel Frankenthal, a physician assistant in our gynecologic oncology clinic here at UCLA. Welcome, Rachel. Thanks for having me today. Our goal is to explore recent advances in checkpoint inhibitor therapy for the treatment of recurrent and advanced endometrial cancer. We'll cover what these advances mean for patients as well as multidisciplinary provider teams. Let's get started. Just as an overview, endometrial cancer is the most common gynecologic cancer in the United States. It's estimated that there will be over 65,000 cases this year and estimated deaths of over 12,000. As you can see, the median age of diagnosis is 63. And across all cancer types, uterine cancer represents 3.4% of new cases and 2.1% of all cancer deaths. Here's an overview uh, diagnosis based on stage. Although most cancers are diagnosed in early stages or in the localized setting, many patients are diagnosed in the regional or advanced cancer setting as well. The five-year relative survival is 81.3%. However, we know that there is still a lot to do with endometrial cancer. And one of the major issues that has come to light is disparities in endometrial cancer survival. Mortality rates for uterine cancer are now comparable to ovarian cancer. And this is both because of improvements in ovarian cancer, but more concerning because of increasing rates of endometrial cancer and increasing death rates. Concerningly, the burden for black women has increased disproportionately and now represents one of the largest cancer uh, racial disparities across cancer settings. Among women with endometrial cancer, black women have a higher mortality than white women, and racial disparities cannot solely be explained by histologic subtype and stage at diagnosis. It is imperative that we address our these disparities with improvement in understanding tumor biology, as well as improving our cancer uh, enrollment in clinical trials. Just as a um, current landscape, chemotherapy is the mainstay for recurrent metastatic and high-risk disease. Here you can see in our typical types of endometrial cancer, carboplatinum and paclitaxel is the standard of care, and this includes carcinosarcoma. In patients who have uterine serous carcinoma with HER2 expression and advanced stages, carboplatinum and paclitaxel along with trastuzumab is a line of therapy or the treatment of choice. But what we're really excited about is the new changing landscape of endometrial cancer. And I'm gonna to refer to this as a modern molecular classification. This is based on the TCGA data and it is broken up into four subgroups. First, POL-E, which is the ultra-mutated uh, subtype. This is the subtype with the most favorable prognosis in endometrial cancer and represents about 6% of all cases. Next is the MSI-high 
or microsatellite instable group. This is also a hypermutated group and generally has a more favorable prognosis. The next two categories are based on copy number. So there's copy number low, which is the most common subgroup, and this is the typical endometroid histology, and then copy number high, and these are often associated with p53 mutations. This represents our subtypes such as serous or clear cell carcinomas. This shifting paradigm has really changed our understanding of endometrial cancer. And you can see here that there are both what we call hot tumors, these are the tumors that are most likely to respond to immunotherapy, which we're gonna focus some time on, and then our cold tumors where we have other therapy options to consider. So we'll review this all in a more detail, but before we do that, Rachel, what do you think, it's, what do you think is important to highlight when we talk to our patients about molecular testing? I think it's important to highlight to patients that molecular testing can provide insight as to why a patient may have developed endometrial cancer, and if that patient might be at risk for genetic mutations such as Lynch syndrome. And this has implications for both the patient and their family members. It's also important to highlight that molecular testing now guides treatment decisions, so it's important that we obtain this testing sooner rather than later. Yeah, I think that's great. And I think one other thing to consider is it might actually also indicate which patients might be candidates for certain clinical trials, both in the frontline and recurrent settings. So as we're learning more, I think it's really important we do this sooner um, and help patients and providers understand the importance of it. So let's do a deeper dive into the molecular classification and more importantly, how it impacts those treatment options for patients with endometrial cancer. So. Once again, here's the overall molecular classification. And so we're gonna really focus on immune checkpoint inhibitors, and this will be really for those hot tumors, those POL-E mutations, those mismatch repair deficient, and MSI high tumors. And then we talked a little bit about chemotherapy for those patients who have those copy number high or P53 aberrant tumors. One thing that's being further explored also is hormonal-based therapies for those copy number low tumors. And there's also studies looking at um, maintenance strategies for those patients as well. But what is really exciting is that these, this molecular classific classification is now gonna help guide treatment selection for a personalized approach to medicine. So we may be able to kind of optimize the treatment selection and give patients the best outcome while minimizing side effects. So let's focus on MSI high or mismatch repair deficient uh, tumors in endometrial cancer. It's one of the most common findings or endometrial cancer is actually one of the more common tumors where you find this mutation. And so when you look at this um, chart, you can see that mismatch repair deficient is seen in about 25 to 30% of cases. Um, and so it's really important that we look for this because this can really be an important treatment strategy. And just like you stated, Rachel, it can also inform which patients may require further analysis for germline testing. Mismatch repair proficient, or MMRP, also known as microsatellite stable, or MSS, is present in about 70 to 75%. So although it's the majority of cases, it's still really important to identify those that have this mutation. And here's just a, a, a way of thinking about this. So I didn't talk about this earlier, but mismatch repair proteins can be tested by immunohistochemistry in most pathology labs. And they're testing for four proteins, MLH1, PMS2, MSH2, and MSH6. And when there's missing proteins, it may represent mismatch repair deficiency, or it might be hypermethylation, which can be tested further by um, the pathologist. 
MSI is kind of like a surrogate for mismatch repair testing. This is not typically done in a pathology lab at a center, but can be done with uh, next-gen sequencing. And so both of these are, are informative and can help determine which patients are candidates for immunotherapy. And so in our academic centers, we typically have our effective systems in place for for obtaining this appropriate testing. But there are some barriers that can occur depending on where you're located or what institution you're affiliated with. Rachel, what do you find are some common challenges when obtaining testing? Sure, so as you said, at our institution, our pathology lab routinely tests our tumors for the presence of mismatch repair proteins through immunohistochemistry. But this might not be available and might not be routinely done at all centers or at all practices. And it's important to note that 50% of all endometrial cancers are diagnosed out in the communities or in small practices. So it's really important that providers and patients really understand how critical it is um, to obtain this testing for patients. And so what do you think are ways to overcome some of these challenges, particularly at these smaller centers or where there may be somebody who treats one or two endometrial cancers a year? That's a great question. I think having a good relationship with local pathology labs is important because maybe you can develop a flow for this. So when you when they do diagnose an endometrial cancer, whether it's an endometrial biopsy or on a surgical specimen, they know that it's part of their workflow to do um, immunohistochemistry stains on these tumors. And if those pathology labs can't do it, perhaps they need to find other pathology labs who can do this testing. Yeah, and one other thing to note is a lot of endometrial cancers are actually treated not just by out in the community, but by general gynecologists. And so oftentimes they may be referred for kind of a second opinion or consultation with an oncology practice. How can advanced care practitioners help with the coordination of some of this testing or uh, education around this practice? It's a great point. So a lot of practices do have allied health professionals like nurse practitioners and physician assistants, and we can be great members of the team to identify when patients uh, are diagnosed with a cancer if they receive those lab reports. And if MMR testing is not done, they can reach out to the labs. They can also reach out to oncology practices and other cancer centers um, to see how they might be able to get those slides to those cancer centers to get the stains done. Yeah, and educational programs such as this one are always a great reminder to make sure that this is done. Exactly. Every patient who undergoes surgery for endometrial cancer should routinely receive biomarker testing. Biomarker testing provides an opportunity for us to determine which patients should receive genetic testing to identify Lynch syndrome. Now, patients who um, do test positive for Lynch syndrome can then be proactive and they can be screened for other cancers that they might be at risk for and their family members can also be tested. Biomarker testing also informs treatment decisions if a patient progresses on initial chemotherapy. And as these exciting treatments start to move into the frontline settings, it's important to gather this information sooner than later so that we know right off the bat if a patient um, might be a great candidate for immunotherapy. Immune checkpoint inhibitors work by revving up the immune system, and that's how I explain it to patients. Um, Immune checkpoint inhibitors remove the breaks on the immune system, and they do this by blocking inhibitory PD-L1 proteins from binding, and that then allows T cells to go ahead and attack and kill cancer cells. And as we know, patients that have MSI high tumors or deficient MMR status can respond really well to these treatments. 
So Dr. Solani, if you're considering starting a patient on immunotherapy or offering immunotherapy as a potential regimen, how do you go about discussing immunotherapy with patients? So I think you described it really nicely. You know, I think helping the patient understand that this is kind of a therapy that helps stimulate their own immune system to help attack the cancer. And although there are side effects, which we're going to review, generally pretty well tolerated. The most important thing to me, though, also is that they understand the data. And I'm really excited to discuss that, where immune therapy has really kind of changed the, the treatment schemas that we use for patients with endometrial cancer. Absolutely. Well, let's go ahead and review some of the evidence. So I wanna start by reviewing uh, Keynote 775. This is a study of patients with advanced metastatic or recurrent endometrial cancer who had received prior platinum-based therapy. And this was a study in patients who were mismatch repair proficient. So these were kind of those copy number low patients. These patients, um, and there were some copy number high patients in this group as well. Uh, but these patients could not have mismatch repair deficiency or uh, MSI status. And this compared patients to lenvatinib, which is a TK anti-TKI, or and pembrolizumab versus physician choice chemotherapy. And here you can see the survival curves. The median progression-free survival in patients who received lenvatinib and pembrolizumab was 6.6 months compared to 3.8 months for physician choice chemotherapy. And you can see that was a hazard ratio of 0.60. This also made an improvement in overall survival. And you can see here the median overall survival was 17.4 months with lenvatinib and pembrolizumab versus 12.0 months with physician choice chemotherapy. The objective response rate was 30% in patients with the study combination compared to 15%. So we saw a doubling in objective response rates, and this is really powerful data. Interestingly, the progression-free survival too, so for the next regimen, was also increased in those patients who received lenvatinib and pembrolizumab, showing that this really had long-acting benefit. And because of this data, this combination received FDA approval for patients with endometrial cancer in the recurrent setting that is not MSI high, so patients who are MSS or mismatch repair proficient. Furthermore, the FDA also has approved PD-1 inhibitors as monotherapy in advanced endometrial cancer in specific settings. And this is really exciting because we have two agents that have been approved, and you can see there are several indications. And just to summarize, pembrolizumab is approved for patients who have MSI high or mismatch repair deficient tumors, patients who have, or patients who have TMB high tumors. And dostarlamab is approved for patients who have mismatch repair deficient tumors with endometrial cancer or those who have um, all tumors with mismatch repair deficiencies. So really making some advances with PD-1 inhibitors as well as monotherapy. And here's why. Keynote 158 looked at pembrolizumab as a single agent in patients with mismatch repair deficient endometrial cancer. And you can see here that the objective response rate was 48%. And so remember, it was 30% in combination with lenvatinib in those who are mismatch repair proficient. So you are seeing a more pronounced objective response rate with single agent in these patients whose tumors are what we call hot tumors. And you can see there were some complete response and partial responses as well. So really a, a nice active agent in these patients. What's really impressive is the median duration of response had not been reached. And so what this means is that those patients who were responding tended to have a durable response. And you can see that from the swimmer's plot on the right side. 
Another study looking at the same population is the Garnett study, or which looked at Dostarlimab. And we see very similar data. Here you can see in these patients, this study actually included patients with mismatch repair deficient and mismatch repair proficient tumors. Focusing on the MMRD patients, you can see that the objective response rate was once again in the high 40s with a high rate of complete responders and partial responders. And once again, a really long lasting durable response to those who are responding. The mismatch repair proficient group also had a response rate of about 15%. Now this did not receive FDA approval in this group, but I just wanna highlight that this is pretty comparable to what we see with physician choice chemotherapy in, in the same population. And you can see here the median duration of response was 19.4 months in this population. So something very notable in those patients who do have a response. And here you can see the same kind of data that's just highlighted. This really just highlights this durable anti-tumor activity in these patients. And um, those patients who responded at 24 months had a probability of, of remaining in response of 83.7%. So this is really impressive data. And even in those who are mismatch repair proficient, just under 50% had a durable response. So really impressive data that I would say warrants a little bit more exploration. And what was really interesting, this year at ASCO, distrolimab was from the Garnett cohort was compared to real-world uh, treatment uh, cohort. And so here you can see that the median overall survival from the Garnett study cohort, um, and you can see this is listed as kind of follow-up in time by months. And so you can see at six months it was 83%. And let's just jump to 24 months where it was 52.9% in those patients receiving dostarlimab. And this is compared to that real-world cohort of patients who did not receive um, anti-PD-1 uh, therapy. So these are patients who received standard chemotherapy, where it was 69.5% at six months and a 33.8% at 24 months compared to that 52%. So really kind of showing the true activity of PD-1 inhibition in this population. So now we've seen the evidence that checkpoint inhibitors can be an effective therapeutic option for our patients with advanced endometrial cancer. Rachel, before you take us through some important safety aspects of this, these therapies, what are some key pieces of information you'd like patients and caregivers to understand when starting an immunotherapy regimen? I always like to explain to patients that immunotherapy is not chemotherapy. And I think patients can be thrown off by that or confused by that. So I think it's important to take a moment to explain it and explain that immunotherapy works differently by utilizing a patient's immune system. And because of that, they can have different side effects um, than standard chemotherapy, but that typically uh, immunotherapy is very well tolerated. And so while we're offering something very different from what they're comfortable with, that this treatment may offer them the best outcome. Yeah, and I, I wanna echo that. You know, I think it's important to recognize that not only has it been shown to be more effective than standard chemotherapy, and so you can highlight both the efficacy and the quality of life outcomes. So I think it's really exciting, and it has shifted the, the needle or moved the needle in the treatment of endometrial cancer. Absolutely. And when making these decisions, we want patients to feel really good about the treatment decisions we're making for them. And one way to do that is to engage patients in what's called shared decision-making. And really that's just having an open conversation with your patient. You wanna invite them into that conversation, let them know that you really care about how they feel um, and what they think about these different options. Clearly present to them the two treatment options, whether it's standard chemotherapy and immunotherapy, 
simply and clearly explain the benefits and the risks. And as you mentioned before, what your goals for treatment are with them and what you think their outcomes might be on these different treatment regimens. Um, and then ask the patients, I think, how they're feeling, if, you have, if they have certain questions, certain fears, things that excite them so that you can help them find clarity around these decisions. Because we know that shared decision-making has a significant impact on a, pervader, uh, on a patient's psychological well-being, their adherence to these regimens, and their confidence as you as a provider, their team, and this process. Dosing for pembrolizumab and dosarlamab are slightly different, but both are given IV and can be given every three weeks. Um, and for pembrolizumab can be given every six weeks. Dosarlamab also is given every three weeks, and then after the first four infusions, the interval extends to every six weeks. And these longer intervals can actually make these regimens really appealing and more feasible for patients who might live far away from infusion centers or who might have transportation challenges. Immune-related toxicities can affect any organ system, but these are the most common toxicities that we see. And I like to think about them as the itises. So gastritis, for example, patients may present commonly with diarrhea, abdominal pain, nausea, and if they have colitis, they can have fevers and hematochesia, they'll be very uncomfortable. Uh, pneumonitis, patients may experience coughing, shortness of breath, chest discomfort, dermatitis, your rash, itching, they may have peeling of the skin or blisters, and then endocrinopathies typically present as thyroiditis or hypothyroidism. The timing of these immune-mediated toxicities is very variable, as you can see here. Usually dermatitis and colitis will present relatively quickly, which is why it's really important to keep a close eye on these patients, to see them before every infusion, and to continue monitoring their lab work. In terms of grading um, and managing these toxicities, you can see here that for grade one toxicities, which are minimal to no symptoms, you continue treatment. You can also treat symptomatically if patients have minimal symptoms. For grade two toxicities, which are mild to moderate symptoms, you can consider holding treatment depending on the clinical scenario and how comfortable you are with the situation treating symptomatically. You can also initiate a few days of corticosteroids. It's usually 0.1 to, to one milligram per kilogram per day. And once those toxicities resolve to a grade one, you can continue treatment. For grade three or four toxicities, you wanna hold treatment, treat symptomatically, initiate systemic corticosteroids, and I also would um, refer to a specialist and have them weigh in on whether or not they feel it's safe to resume immunotherapy. Typically, if patients resolve to a grade one, you can continue, but for patients that present with significant toxicities very quickly after starting treatment, you definitely wanna be cautious. Um, and for grade four toxicities, you're gonna permanently discontinue treatment with the exception of endocrinopathies, which can be managed on hormone replacement. This is an example of how to manage organ-specific toxicities. And I find that having these charts and having guidelines handy really helpful when managing patients. And you can see this one here. You can also find these on other oncology organization websites such as NCCN and ASCO. So in summary, it's important to educate your patients and their teams when starting immunotherapy. You wanna make sure to educate patients and their families. Make sure they understand that immunotherapy is different from standard chemotherapy, that it works differently and it has its own set of side effects, but that typically it's very well tolerated. 
You also want to emphasize to patients that they should report any toxicities to you as soon as possible so that we can keep these patients on their treatment for as long as possible. And finally, I like to equip patients with a toolkit at home. So before they start immunotherapy, I'll send them anti-nausea medications, I'll have them pick up some over-the-counter anti-diarrhea meds and a probiotic. So again, if any of these toxicities arise, we can start treating them right away. Thanks, Rachel. So, you know, there are a number of clinical trials studying checkpoint inhibitors in endometrial cancer, and one really exciting avenue is moving them earlier in the treatment setting. How do you talk to your patients about clinical trial enrollment opportunities? So again, I think education and communication is key. Patients might not be familiar with clinical trials, and they might not be aware of the rigorous process that clinical trials go through to get approved and to get to, you know, offering these new treatments to patients. So I like to explain that to patients because I think sometimes the idea of clinical trials might scare patients. You know what I mean? Yeah, I agree. And I think one thing that's always really important is helping patients understand what the clinical trial is. So there's different phases of clinical trial and some may be kind of exploring whether the therapy works, but these trials, particularly the ones in the front line, are comparing the standard of care to the standard of care plus an experimental agent for the most part. And this is pretty exciting because the patient's going to be getting what you would be giving them off trial, but they may have an opportunity to get something that may be actually improving their outcome. And so this is important because our clinical trials where patients, you know, not only helped inform practice for the next generation of women with endometrial cancer, but may have reaped benefit from those therapies at an earlier time frame. And so I think it's really important to kind of make sure we're always screening patients for available clinical trials and informing them, you know, so they don't feel like they're, you know, a guinea pig or being studied on, that these are really trials that are providing them with, them with the best known standard of care or something potentially better. Absolutely. And so, you know, we talked about this and really the importance, I don't think this is something we can highlight enough, is the importance of clinical trials. So, you know, robust the, the more robust the participation, the better the results will be. And one thing I think that clinical trials have really struggled with is diversity and enrollment. And what we can see here is our enrollment in clinical trials does not represent the patients who are afflicted with this disease. For instance, when you look at some of these, lenvatinib and pembrolizumab had about 2% patient population that, that were black, black women. And when you look at that real-world Garnett study um, versus uh, physician choice, uh, the real-world cohort, it was about 20% of patients were black. And so there's really clearly this imbalance of patient population. We need to make sure we're offering this to all of our patients who are eligible, but also kind of going above and beyond to help, you know, dispel any myths about clinical trials, overcome any potential barriers that can easily be addressed um, because we're doing our patients um, and, and the medical field a disservice by not doing this. Patients are often very um, generous with both their motivation and their experience and that social benefit or that kind of um, societal benefit of providing the next generation with the best options can also resonate with a lot of patients and their family members. 
What I'm really excited about though is how immunotherapy is moving to the front line. And this is a list of trials that you can see here. So Ruby is a trial of dostarlamab plus carboplatin and paclitaxel versus carboplatin and paclitaxel and placebo. So the addition of a PD-1 inhibitor with chemotherapy as a frontline treatment. There's also a second part of that same regimen with the incorporation of a PARP inhibitor, which has really changed the game with ovarian cancer. So kind of exploring that role in endometrial cancer. And then you can see some other trials that are also exploring PD-1, PD-L1 inhibitors, Duralumab and Atezolizumab. And then LEAP001, which is looking at lenvatinib and pembrolizumab versus chemotherapy. So now you have kind of immunotherapy uh, with a TKI versus uh, carboplatin and paclitaxel. So these trials, I think, are really exciting. And I think it will be amazing if we can offer our patients, you know, immunotherapy in the frontline or a non-chemotherapy arm as frontline therapy. So stay tuned for this data. I think this is going to be really exciting. And I think we can kind of finish up by just talking about the role of the clinical care team. So, you know, I think it's always important to remember that this is a big partnership. So gynecologic oncologists or the gynecologists and the medical oncologists, allied health professionals, nurse practitioners, PAs, the nurses, pharmacists, genetic counselors who also help identify these patients, pathologists who are really a key part in helping us to identify some of these um, molecular changes based on immunohistochemistry at the time of diagnosis, and many, many other people who are part of the clinical care team. And I haven't even mentioned the patient, their caregivers, their families. Right. So it's really a broad group of, of people who all contribute to kind of improving the ther therapy and care of patients with endometrial cancer. What are your thoughts, Rachel? Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I, I mean, taking care of patients is definitely it's definitely team-based and everyone on the team has their own set of strengths and experiences and comes to this work you know, from different places. And so I think when we all work together and we all take care of patients together, our patients do better. And so I think as long as we all communicate um, with each other and with the patient and the patient knows that ultimately we're all here for them. Um, they're the middle of the, the spoke, the spoke wheel that I think we provide really excellent patient care when we all work together. And you mentioned with the toxicities that, you know, it's important to get kind of our subspecialist or specialists involved. And so I yeah. think, you know, these are, you know, although we're becoming more and more familiar with them, there are some new toxicities that we haven't experienced um, in managing. So, you know, partnering with a dermatologist, with an endocrinologist, you know, and, and sometimes even a GI specialist. So I think having those, those um, providers kind of a, a, us having a pipeline to them as well can be really, a, you know, help us manage these patients to our best ability. Yes. And, and to that effect, teach us more because I've had patients where I thought I knew I was going to send them to a provider, a specialist, and they were going to say, definitely hold immunotherapy. And the provider said, no, you can continue. So I think if there's ever a question on your end, it's always best to incorporate the specialist. Totally agree. So now that we've covered evidence and safety of immunotherapy for treating patients with endometrial cancer, let's review a patient case. So let's say we have a 56-year-old woman who's diagnosed with a FIGO grade 1 endometrial cancer. She undergoes minimally invasive surgery with a hysterectomy and bilateral salpingo-oophorectomy and a sentinel node dissection. Her final pathology reveals a grade 2 endometrioid adenocarcinoma stage 3C1, so that means involvement of her pelvic lymph nodes. 
IHC is performed and reveals loss of MLH1 and PMS2, which defines her as mismatch repair deficient or MSI high. She then receives six cycles of carboplatinum and paclitaxel, which is the standard of care at this time, and she has a good initial response by uh, CT scan. However, four months after completing her first line of therapy, she has new abdominal symptoms, and an abdominal CT scan is performed, which reveals metastatic disease. She also has a biopsy that confirms this finding. What options do you offer her now? Well, I think because she, her tumor is MSI high and MMR deficient, and she's already received a, her standard six cycles of carboplatin and paclitaxel, that she's a great candidate for immunotherapy and uh, you know, immunotherapy alone. Yeah, and we have two FDA-approved uh, medications in this group, Distarlamab or Pembrolizumab, and both would be appropriate choices. So I think this is a really exciting thing that a few years ago we wouldn't have been able to offer these patients. So let's say she receives a checkpoint inhibitor and she now presents with grade two diarrhea about one month after treatment initiation. How would our team approach this patient? So I would ask the patient about her symptoms and also if her diarrhea was interfering with her daily activities. Because the patient may have four to six stools per day, but that might not be a big deal to the patient. She may be able to continue with her daily activities. Regardless, I would treat symptomatically, make sure she's hydrated, um, recommend anti-diarrhea medications, probiotics, a simple diet, and then we could also initiate uh, systemic steroids for a few days. Once her symptoms resolve to a grade one, I mean, we could also consider whether or not we were gonna hold treatment. For a grade two though, if a patient's feeling okay and resuming her daily activities, I think we'd probably continue treatment um, and treat symptomatically. Yeah, and I agree. And this can be um, you know, always important to highlight hydration and other things as well to make sure that the patient's not becoming volume depleted. But I think just uh, managing the symptoms education and then monitoring them. And as long as they do improve, then I think resuming therapy um, is, is very appropriate. So in conclusion, patients with endometrial cancer have limited treatment options, and we know that there is a rising incidence and mortality, and this really represents a high unmet need. We also are seeing increases in racial disparities, and so this is really an opportunity to help us understand endometrial cancer at multiple levels of care. But we are making some improvements, and these improvements have really come in the last few years. Biomarker testing is imperative for all patients with endometrial cancer. This can be done on the tumor and can be done at most sites. And if not, I think what we talked about is maybe partnering with the area that can help do this. This molecular classification helps us understand this tumor behavior, and I believe is ultimately going to help guide therapy choice. What we really focus on today is checkpoint inhibitor therapy, which has been shown to be effective for patients with endometrial cancer. As mentioned, dostarlamab and pembrolizumab are approved for second-line monotherapy for mismatch repair deficient or MSI tumors, and combination therapy is approved for second-line mismatch repair proficient tumors, and that's lenvatinib and pembrolizumab. But more excitingly, investigations are ongoing to evaluate these regimens in the frontline setting, and it's most important that we continue to work together to support our patients and continue to educate each other as we're learning more and this landscape is becoming larger. We mentioned racial disparities, but I really want to highlight the opportunity for clinical trial enrollment um, and making sure that we prioritize uh, all patients. 
and then patient education, right? So I think you really did a nice job highlighting how we help engage them in this shared treatment decision-making, both patients, their caregivers, and making sure they understand why we're choosing the therapies we are to give them the best outcome and the best quality of life. So I'd like to thank you all for joining us today. In summary, we've seen evidence that supports the use of checkpoint inhibitors for treatment with advanced endometrial cancer, representing positive alternatives for patients and learned effective approaches for integrating them into clinical practice. It's important to garner perspectives from all members of the care team. And I personally thank you, Rachel, for joining me today and every day in the clinical care setting. Thank you so much. I'm so happy to be here. Thanks again. And we hope you found this activity informative and useful for your practice. This activity is certified by PVI, Peerview Institute for Medical Education. Please remember to download the slides. Thank you for listening. Download materials and complete the post-test for instant credit at peerview.com forward slash rxv860. This educational activity is supported by an educational grant from GlaxoSmithKline.